So when I was about 18 years old, I remember one day I was sitting on the couch in my apartment talking to my girlfriend at the time uh, just about how I felt kind of lost. I didn't know who I was, didn't know what I was doing, didn't really have a whole lot of direction. And I remember her just sitting there very silently listening and I was just complaining because I, I, I had this, you know, maybe you guys have heard this before. My, my parents would always say things like, you could do whatever you want to do. You could be whatever you want to be, right? As long as you try hard enough or something to that effect. And growing up too, I had my oldest brother who is kind of the artist type. And in fact, he works in TV and film now in LA. And my second oldest brother who was the athlete. And in fact, he's now a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and owns two gyms. And I was the third oldest and I was always kind of like, I was just good enough at both those areas that I would try to keep up with them, but I'd always be in their shadow. And I was one of those, like, I, I would try to please everybody. So if there's a tension over here, I'm going to try to find a way to do it. If there's a tension over here, I'm going to find a way to do it. And I would try to please my dad a lot. And at this time in my life, as I was sitting there having this conversation with my girlfriend at the time, though I didn't recognize it then, I was also trying really, really hard to be a certain person for her. And oddly enough, that was the same day that she had planned to come over to my apartment to break up with me which she did moments after I poured out my heart before her. <laughs> she probably had some great reasons, like I didn't have direction for my life, right? <laughs> so no shade on her. But I spent the next couple months trying to, as you would say, as an 18-year-old might try to do, find yourself, right? And trying to figure out who am I really? Like I've, I've been this person for this group over here. I've been this person for this other group over here, but who am I? Who has God created me to be? And I don't know if you ever ask questions like that too, like, God, what do you want me to do? Or, God, what are the plans you have for me? Right? And I was asking a lot of those types of questions. And it wasn't until in that same apartment on that same couch one night that God just kind of spoke to me in a big way. You're going backwards. You're starting with the wrong question. And it's taken me a lot of time to kind of piece together what that meant. And I want you guys to know I am still working on that. And that's why I say this is not just a foundation that you pour and then you can move on from it and keep building on top of, but it is actually every bit as much a part of your daily walk and your daily attempt of following Jesus is going back to that first question. Don't go backwards. We have to start with first who is God, not who am I? And when we do that, we can start connecting the dots from there. And we keep circling back to that question. And we keep moving through that over and over and over again. God's people throughout scripture would always remind themselves of that. This is the God who brought you out of slavery. Now who are you, right? And so I want to encourage us as we dive into this this morning. And maybe you've, you're like, we've gone through the four questions before. I know this stuff, right? Like, listen, this is who we are. It's rooted in who he is. We have to keep coming back to it. Daily, not just once a year, not just every August when we try to remind ourselves who we are as Missio and we're not sure what series we're gonna do in between the two books we're studying, right? Daily, we need to remind ourselves of this truth. And I, I have a lot of friends and family members that I grew up with in the faith and even in ways where 
part of bringing me into the faith that I think still are looking at this backwards and have walked away from the faith because of it. Because they're starting with that question when they look at the scriptures and when they look at Christianity, they start with that question, what am I supposed to do? What do I gotta do to make God accept me? Or what do I need to do to be right with him, right? Or they ask that question, what are the plans you have for me, Lord? Because I know they're great. I know you have great things for me. That's what this one preacher said. And so, what are they? And when either those things don't pan out the way that they expected to, or they fall flat on their face, or maybe they are able to actually get some things accomplished and fool themselves into creating an identity of their own, either way, once they get back to that question of, then what has God done? It doesn't leave much room, right? Because it's all been about, what have you done? What do you need to do? And you're building your identity off of that. And we do that often in our culture. So if you drink heavily, you are a alcoholic, right? If you messed up at work, you are a failure. If you did a great job raising your kids, you are an awesome parent. I haven't mastered that one yet. But we start to define ourselves based off of that. And we get to that question, then what has God done? And we're not leaving much space for him. So therefore, God must be pretty distant, pretty absent. And I have so many people in my life right now who are there at that place going, then who is this God? I don't know him. Because it's all been about what I'm doing, what I'm creating for myself. And it's kind of like moving backwards like that is like me telling you to frost a cake before you bake it. It's kind of a mess, right? When you're just frosting cake batter, like there's nothing firm for it to sit on. Or it's like, really what it is, is it's trying to be made without the maker. There's this great podcast I've been listening to called This Cultural Moment, and they like to say in that podcast that this world wants the kingdom without the king. And that's essentially what we're doing when we try to build and create an identity for ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves and ignore the maker. And so we start there. So we're gonna look at that this morning. Each week we'll spend some time zooming in on one of those four questions, and we start with first question, who is God? Because when we open the Bible, guess who's the main character of the story? It's God. And yes, it's true, the Bible is primarily about God and his relationship with humanity, but hear that, it's humanity, not God and his relationship with Paul, or with Michael, or with Maisie, specifically. Now, yes, you get to have part of that. You get to have relationship with this great God, but the story is bigger. It's not just about you. It's not just about me. And even that, if the story is about two main characters, God and humanity, who is the only human being who ever fully, faithfully lived out what that relationship was supposed to look like? It was God himself. So God takes on both of those main characters in the story as he becomes Jesus in the flesh and he lives that out. This whole story is about who this great, glorious, good and gracious God is. So we're gonna look at four glorious truths about God. Now there's lots of truths you can find about God in the scripture. There's lots of facts you can find about him. There's lots of things you can find about his character and his nature. 
But we've borrowed this actually from a, a pastor and an author, Tim Chester. And what we're not doing is saying these are the only four things Scripture says about God. But what we are doing is saying as finite creatures, as those of us who need maybe to break it down a little bit and get a little more simple so that we can understand it and we can grow in it, if you're like me, is here are four things we know we find in Scripture that are true. We see them all throughout Scripture, but specifically, we're going to be looking at Psalm 145 this morning, which is a great picture of all four of these truths about God. And most truths about God you can place into one of these categories, if not all of them. Most things about what God does, we can see it exemplified in these four truths about God. And when we understand these truths, it starts to inform us not only of who God is, but then as our maker, it starts to inform who he's created us to be now. And I'm convinced that every time we get to that fourth question, how do we live, and we get it wrong, it's because we have a misunderstanding at this beginning here. And so actually a really great way to look at this is if you are getting to that fourth question, how am I living right now? And it's not the way that you think it should be or it's not in line with the way Jesus has called us to live, then start tracing backwards and go, what am I saying? If I'm living this way, what am I saying that is about my identity? If I am drinking heavily, what am I saying about myself, right? Or pick any of those other examples I said or another example in your head right now. What is that saying about who I am? What does that leave space for what God has done in my life? Who am I now saying God is? And when you get to that, you go, wait a second. I know that that's not true. And that's a moment of repentance. Turning away from a false belief and running full on into what you know is true. But if we're going to deal with that, with belief, it kind of begs the question, what does that even mean, right? What does it mean to believe? I want to hear some of your guys' thoughts. What does it mean to believe in who God really is. It's one of those words we throw out all the time, isn't it? We think we know it. Wait until your six-year-old asks you, what does that mean? And you gotta figure out a way to explain it to a child. Do you really understand it? Any brave souls wanna take a stab at it? Jessica? That's a good distinction, yeah. Do you, if you guys didn't hear that, do you believe, do you just believe in him? And I think the way you're saying that is kind of like this intellectual assent, a knowledge that he's there. Like check the box. Yeah. Okay, I'm a Christian. Yeah. Or do you believe him? The words he says, and does that inform your actions, the way you live? It's good. treasuring him above anything else. And what he says and who he is is more important than anything. That's good. Chris? When I think of belief, I think of 
not just believing there is a God, and then we have all these, based on our life experiences, these ideas about how he is, but really believing what he says about who he is. Yeah, it's good. Definitely is a mystery in so many ways. And maybe that's why we're all having a hard time explaining it, right? Why I was so quiet when I first asked the question. Because uh, there definitely is a reality that, like, unless God comes and renews our hearts and, and makes us alive, like, we, we just won't believe. Yeah, there's a reality there. And yet, at the same time, I want to say, too, once that has happened... Once God has saved you and made you alive in Christ, then we are called into this task of continually believing, right? Partnering with him to continually believe. Because if I'm honest with you guys, there are moments I do not believe. And I, just to clarify, that doesn't mean I am not a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean I am not a Christian, I'm not saved, or I'm a heretic. What that means is that there are moments where what I say up here, that I believe in him, doesn't match how I'm living out here, right? Because there's been a disconnect from that first question, who is God, to now that fourth question, how do I live? And that has happened somewhere along the way, mostly in here, in my heart. I acknowledge intellectually, I believe in God and everything he says, but experientially, and how I feel, and how I respond to the junk that happens in life, there are moments where I am not displaying that I truly do believe that. Like if I tell my son, go ahead and jump, I will catch you, and he might say, yeah, I trust you, but he's not gonna jump because really there's still something within him that goes, no, 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 what if? What if he doesn't catch me, right? What does Romans say? If you confess with your mouth and believe with your what? Heart. Is it talking about just that, that organ that pumps blood through veins? Is it talking about the way we talk about heart today in our society around Valentine's Day, like just your love and your, your fluffy emotions and affections? Scripture mentions that word heart a lot. And yes, it's both those things and so much more. And so it's talking about your feelings and your affections, but also your motivations in life. It's basically getting at that very thing that pumps blood through your whole body and makes your body alive. It's using that as an analogy to say the very core of who you are, your whole entire being. If you confess with your mouth and believe with everything you are, that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. How do we get there? How do we move from just this, I know this in my head, I think it's probably right, to I believe this with every fiber of my being and every action that I make is based on that belief. 
Those moments where we go, wait, I'm not living like I believe, we gotta capture those. Take every thought captive, every action captive, every word captive, every motivation captive. See, this makes sin a much bigger deal, doesn't it? It's no longer just the things that you do or don't do that you weren't supposed to. Now it becomes your motivations behind it, your heart. That's exactly what Jesus did on his Sermon on the Mount. He took all those rules, all those things listed out, and he says, yeah, but let me take it a step further. If you even do this in your heart, you have sinned, right? Sin is a much bigger deal now. And so we need a much bigger solution. This type of belief and this type of understanding and starting with who God is helps us see that God is a much bigger God than we ever dared believe before. And that his solution to our problem of sin, which is so great, is the only thing great enough to solve it. And it's so much bigger than we ever thought before. It's no longer just my personal relationship with God. It's no longer just my personal salvation because I said a prayer, raised a hand. It's no longer just I could be made right with God if I follow the right steps. But it is God has come and undone the very thing that we have no control over, which is death. And reunited us with him across the great chasm of our sin. And that he is doing that cosmically with all of creation. We need a picture of a much bigger God. And so we're going to start to get a picture of that by looking at Psalm 145. Go ahead and open with me. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 145. It's 21 verses. And I want to read the entire Psalm to us. And I would love, as we are going through that, for you to take note of those four truths that we said earlier, that God is a great God, he is a glorious God, he is a good God, and he is gracious to us. And just try to, try to take note mentally of how many times those words or those sentiments pop out at us from what King David wrote thousands of years ago. Psalm 145, a song of praise from David. And he writes, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. 
The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is God's word, amen. There's a lot of great truth about God there. And I just wanna stop for a moment. Let's stop and let's experience that together, okay? And one way we can do that, one way we experience how great and good and glorious and gracious our God is, is that we remind each other and we point it out to one another and we share examples of it and we celebrate that. So we didn't do this before we started the sermon. I would like to take a moment now to pause and let's hear some examples from each other of how God has been good or great or gracious to you or how you have seen him to be glorious this past week. Go ahead. Yes, God. And in all these things, we give thanks. May we trust you more and more as we hear these stories. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us have gone through these four Gs before, right? And so I, we are going to examine them closely, but we could have spent a whole, we've, we've done whole sermons on just each one before, and that's not even enough, really, to exhaust the truth about each one of them. <laughs> Um, but because all of us have, have heard these so many times, I thought it would be really good for us just to experience that, taste and see that the Lord is good. As in community, we share how God has been really at work in our lives. Like what we just heard in each of those four stories is, and how fitting that there's four, right? Is that that's the same God, you guys, that we just read about, that David wrote about. That's the same great God that he's writing about, that he's in awe of. It's the same God who has been gracious to us, who is gracious to him, who has been good and glorious. Like, let's, let's never stop doing this. We need to constantly remind one another who God is, and we get to do that by pointing to what he's done and how he's at work in our lives. It's so good. God is a great God, David writes. Great is the Lord, verse three, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. This is the God who is great over this story we heard right here, that when something seemed out of control, it was something you never expected to happen and probably caused a lot of questions, right? And yet God is in control over all of it. Do you know that's what we mean when we say God is great? Another word for that, you're Theological big word for that is God is sovereign. No one or no thing is greater than our God. No other God that any other nation might worship. No thing in our culture that our friends and our neighbors worship is greater or in more power than our God. That in that situation, he sees what's going on and he's still at work there. Right? This is a God who sees all things, knows all things, and is involved in all of it. It's his creation that he cares for, and he is there. 
intimately involved. God is so great that we don't have to be in control. We don't have to be in control of the situations that are going on around us. That when God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave this land and leave your people and I will go and make a a new people out of you. He doesn't even tell Abraham where he's going. He can trust this God because he's in control. He knows what's happening. That when Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers and he's in prison and then when he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house and that guy's wife lies about him and he's in trouble and he's in danger and every step of the way he meets adversity, he knows God is in control. And when Goliath comes, this monster of a man, to laugh and mock at Israel, that David, a little boy working the fields as a shepherd, can come up and say, God is in control. I'm not going to defeat him, but I know that God can use me too. Right? When Joshua goes with his armor bearer, before this huge army of the Philistines, and there's only two of them, he goes, look, God's in control. He could either win this battle with a whole army or he could do it with the two of us. What's the difference? God is here and it's his power. That when Jesus' followers are on the boat in the middle of the sea and Jesus is asleep and all of a sudden the waves start crashing around them and there's a huge storm and they're scared for their lives, Jesus rebukes them. He says, don't you know the one who made the wind and the waves is here with you? And he shows his great power by telling it to hush. Whatever's going on in your life that feels out of control, God is great. You don't have to be in control. Here's the thing, you never were. We all live in this illusion, and especially in our modern day and in our Western culture and with all the technology and the comforts that we have, we can really fool ourselves into thinking that we have control in life, don't we? But we never really do. When you woke up this morning, who put breath in your lungs? You have no control over anything. And yet there's a God who made all things, including you, and he has perfect control. Perfect control. And this is really, and I'm going to spend the most time on this first one, because this is really an acknowledgement of who's in charge. Acknowledging who is king over all of creation. As we saw all throughout Luke, there's this wrestling and this battle for kingdoms, earthly kingdoms. And Jesus is saying, no, I've come to bring the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that same theme throughout the book of Daniel. Really, that's the theme of the entire story of the relationship between God and man is us trying to build up our kingdoms and God saying, no, 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 my kingdom is the only one that will last forever and that is perfect because I am the only one who can be in complete control of all things at all times. Stop trying to take control. Or as Carrie Underwood said it, Jesus, take the wheel, right? I've never actually listened to that song. I don't listen to country guys. He is in control though. So you don't have to be. And I used to think that that statement, actually, like, I I don't have to be in control because God is, had to be tied to the third statement, God is good. Because if he wasn't good and he was in control, we got a whole lot to fear, right? But here's the thing. No, 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 that's a bonus. 
doesn't matter. First thing is God is king. It's about submission. When God comes to Job and Job is like, how can you let all this happen? God basically says, listen, boy, where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Where were you when I hung the moon? Where were you when I created the seas? Who's in charge here? Who's king? Who's in control? We need to submit ourselves. We're like grasshoppers before him. Submit ourselves to the control of God so that even when things don't seem to be going the way you think they should, you can go, but he's God and I'm not. And he's in control. And if he chooses to, he could do what he did for Joseph and say, what you meant for evil, this thing that has happened in your life that should not have happened, God will use for good. Do you believe that? God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is also a glorious God. What does that word glory mean? Does anyone know? Weighty, yeah, weightiness. Yeah, it's one of the best words we have to define it, I think. God is glorious. And what that means is, like think of worth or weightiness. When you think of weightiness, when we say that, what we mean is like picture a scale with the weights on it, right? Which one is tipping on which side is heavier? The weight, the worth, the value, the awe of it. So when you look at the Grand Canyon, you go, whoa. That, that could be a picture of glory. It's pretty glorious. You see a glorious sunset. The sun shines brighter for us, at least in our solar system, than the other stars do. And it seems to have more glory than the other little balls of gas floating around, right? And in fact, so much glory, like you can't even get too close to it. It'll burn you up. It'll blind you. That's the kind of glory God showed when Moses came up the mountain to meet with him. You can't even look me in the face. It'll kill you. Moses gets to see just the backside of him, and he comes down, and he is glowing. He is shining. He is radiating because he was just in the presence of the glory of God. This is the value, the worth, the weightiness of God. And when we truly believe that he has more glory than any other thing in the world, then we will recognize we have nothing else to fear. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear anyone or anything else. And the problem is, as Romans says, is we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we've, instead of worshiping the creator, have started worshiping created things. We have given more glory to created things, to our spouse, to our kids, to our phones in our pockets, to our money, to our comfort. We have given more glory to those things than the one who created all of it. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. And what happens then is we have a whole lot to fear now because all of those things will fail us at some point. And sometimes those are the very things we actually fear. But if we remind ourselves, God is glorious. When you have a situation like Tanya gave us, that someone, someone passed away. I don't think they even knew Jesus. Like, what do you do with that? That can bring a lot of fear, anxiety, pain. What do we do with that? 
we remind ourselves even in those moments, even in the worst points of life, God is bigger than all of it. He is. He gets the last word. We don't even have to fear death because he got glory over that too. God is glorious. I don't have to fear what my boss thinks of me, what my friends think of me. I don't have to fear if I'm going to have enough to pay rent this month. God is bigger than all of that. And he's in control of the boot. God is good. God is good. Like when he, when he allows someone to sell their home so they can spend more time with their kids. And he does that by also providing a dream home for another family. God is good. When we say that word good, when David wrote that word good, he says, the Lord, verse nine, is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. We're not just talking about good in the, in the way that we've watered down that word in our English language. So the word that he uses there is tov in the Hebrew. And what tov means is not just that God is good like he's morally upright, that's part of it, and not just that God is good like, man, this is a really good burrito, like it's satisfying, that's part of it too. It's, it's all of that. It's all of that. God is good, right, perfect, satisfying, pleasing, Everything good in life, whether it's like, man, you did a good job, or yeah, this is a really good kid, they're all good, by the way, or man, this burrito's really good, or man, you're a really good person. Like, anything you think of good in life, it comes from him, he's the source of it. So even people who don't yet know Jesus, who do good things, guess what, it's because they're made in the image of a good God. God is the exemplary of good. He is the source of all good, of anything right and of anything satisfying. And yet how often do we try to go outside of God and we look for something else to satisfy us? How often when you get stressed out, do you turn to, pick your, pick your poison, right? Fill in the blank for yourself. And we find that that thing might numb us it might temporarily give us joy or pleasure, but in the end, it doesn't really satisfy. It's empty. But God is the God who is the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters, who leads us into green pastures. He's also the God who is a good God to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death and out on the other side. He is the God who says, it is good for you to follow in my ways, that we have people writing things like God's word, his commands, his laws are like honey. They're sweet because God is good. You don't have to look to anything else for your satisfaction. Stop turning to your vices. Remind yourself when you do, when you go to binge eat or you go to look at that thing on your screen or when you go to just check out from your family or whatever the thing is, Stop yourself in that moment. Take that thought captive and go, no, 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 God is so much better. God is good. He satisfies. Am I really spending time with him right now? And finally, David writes all throughout here how gracious God is. Verse eight, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Gracious. He's, he's the God who, 
for Liz's mom said, no, 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 there will be no cancer right now. That's grace. He graciously heals. He graciously intervenes. Listen, all of us have fallen short of God's glory and his goodness, and we all fall short of his greatness, and so therefore, we all deserve what? Death. We all deserve death. Rebelling against the king, turning away from the giver and sustainer of life, however you want to put it, we have all brought death upon ourselves. And we do it over and over again daily by failing to believe these truths about God. And yet God is the God who graciously pursues each and every single one of us. God is the God who went and chose Abraham to create a people even after everybody turned away from him. God is the God who rescued Moses, I'm sorry, rescued Noah and all of his creatures on the ark. He's the one who called Moses, a murderer, out to come and rescue and save his people out of slavery to Egypt. He is a gracious, pursuing God. And if God is that gracious, I don't have to prove myself anymore. I don't have to start with that fourth question, what do I do to be right before God? Because God has already given his grace to me. And now my identity is rooted in and is based on what God has done, not what I have done. Why does Israel exist as God's people throughout the Old Testament? Because God called Abraham. Why did they even have a kingdom to begin with? Because God saved them out of Egypt and slavery. Why do we know the good news of Jesus now? Because God came in the form of man. God submitted himself to all the horrors we've created in his creation. To the fragility of mankind that came upon us because of our rebellion to him. And to the brutal death on a cross. And because he gloriously overcame death and because he sent his spirit to empower us the same way Jesus himself was empowered to walk on this earth. And because that spirit then allowed these scared men inside of a room to go out and start preaching good news. And because his spirit then spread to other men and women and children for generation and generation to follow. That you and I here all the way across the world in 2019 could hear the good news that God is a good Glorious, great, gracious God who is pursuing you, who is calling you to come and be a part of his kingdom, who is bringing you back and reuniting you in relationship with the Father, who is wanting to empower you with his spirit so that you could live the way humanity was truly meant to live just like Jesus did, who is bringing you out of darkness into light, who is also bringing you out of death into life the way Jesus had. That's the grace of God. And it's not dependent on what you've done this morning. How many of you blew it already today? Because I have. Thank God he is gracious. I don't have to prove myself even with him. Why would I walk around thinking I gotta prove myself to anyone else? And listen, that, that is not a confident, 
cocky statement. It's not an arrogant statement. I don't got to prove myself to you. No, it's, listen, I know I'm a failure. And the great, glorious God has been good to me, and he has graciously made me his child. I just had a conversation with my son Liam yesterday because he hit his brother again. And I found out he hit his brother because he thought his brother was mad at him. And that's what Liam does is when he thinks people are mad at him, he starts lashing out and he doesn't know what to do. And it just, he gets so hurt when he thinks somebody is angry with him. And so we had a conversation about how great and glorious and good God is, but we had a conversation mostly about how gracious God is. And I said, Liam, do you know if this God who created all things, do you know he loves you? Do you know he made you? Do you know he knows how many hairs you have on your head? And then he got this big smile, and he's like, does he know how many hairs are on your head? I'm like, you little punk. I said, yes, he does. And he knew when they would fall out too. And he knew you before you were in mom's tummy. And he goes, yeah, he knew even before that. I said, yeah. He goes, and, and he's, he made everything. This is now Liam talking. He made everything. He made all the stars and the moon. And I go, yeah, isn't that amazing? And the God who did all of that knows you. And he loves you even after you just hit your brother. If God, who is the king over all the universe, loves you, why are you so worried about what Canon thinks about you right now? Why are you so worried about what mom or I or Jonas think about you right now? Listen, we love you too. And that's awesome. That's a gift from God. Because not every child grows up in a family like that. That's God's grace too. But God loves you. And that's what matters most. You don't have to worry about if people are mad at you when you know that the God who is bigger than all things did everything that he could, spent everything he had, including the life of his only son, to make you his child. Do you guys believe that today? My prayer is that we would not just believe it here, not just say that we, we know that, that we would actually go out and live like that's true. Would you pray that with me? Father, we need to submit to your greatness. You are king above all things and we need to see your glory that you are above all else. And God, as we do that and as we enter into your kingdom, we trust that we will experience, we will taste and see the goodness of you, Lord. And we know that all those things are only possible because of your grace. We thank you for that truth. And as we go to the table this morning, God, remind us of what that grace cost you and your son, Jesus, so that we would go out empowered by your spirit and live like it's true. And we ask this in Jesus' name.